Welcome to the Art of the Christian Ninja Sermon Podcast with Pastor Al Desjardins, a ministry dedicated to helping you find the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. Thank you for listening, and now, here's this week's message. Back into the Gospel of John this week, uh, into our series that we started a while back. Uh, life is ever so slowly starting to come back to normal, even though it sometimes doesn't feel like it. But it's a little bit more normal than it was. And I think it's time that we get back to our normal, and that's the regular expositional study of God's Word, as we were doing before. Uh, I think that since we haven't done it since February, is that we should do a little bit of an over overview uh, just to kind of remind us what's going on, because there is a lot going on in the Gospel of John. I remember a while back when I was contemplating uh, what series I should do next. You guys probably remember I took that big like, 15-week stress leave where my whole life was kind of upside down, and as I was coming back, I was starting to process the idea, what, what should I preach when I come back? What, and so I figured, you know what, I want something simple, something straightforward, lots of stories, uh, wouldn't be super complicated to study. It would just be you know, easier. And so I figured I'd pick the Gospel of John, especially since you know the first Gospel everybody's told to read is the Gospel of John. Um, and wow, was I ever wrong. I couldn't have been wronger. When I sat down to work on the outline, uh, the overview of the book, just the beginning, I had no idea that the structure of the book of John was going to take four weeks to preach. Just, just the outline of it. The Gospel of John is like an onion. It's like every time you peel off a layer, there's more underneath, except for it's like a reverse onion because the more you peel it, the more bigger and complicated it gets. For lack of a better term, the Gospel of John is intricate. The first line, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, kicks off this prologue that outlines and summarizes the whole rest of the book. It introduces Jesus as the condescended God, the incarnated light of the world, John the Baptist as his forerunner, the message of salvation through grace and truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Him alone. And it sets up the whole book as this wonderful amount of rich imagery that's meant to expand the reader's understanding of who Jesus is. It speaks of concepts like light and darkness, the tabernacle and Moses, law and grace, our adoption as children of God, Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Seven more important titles. That's just in the, the prologue. The, the concept in the prologue are then expanded on throughout the rest of the book and then brought back. The structure of the book of John is woven together like this tapestry. In the first four chapters, we see Jesus interacting with individuals. From chapters 5 to 11, we see him interacting with large groups. And always expanding geographically outward with more people following him. And all throughout, we start to see themes from the prologue keep coming back as John introduces Jesus using seven different miracles, or as he calls them, signs that point to Jesus, who Jesus really is, what we should learn about Jesus. So we see Jesus as the source of life when he turns water into wine and he kicks off his ministry. We see him as the master of space and distance as he heals a nobleman's son. We see Jesus as master of time when he heals a lame man on the Sabbath. 
We see him as the bread of life as he feeds the 5,000. He's the master of nature as he walks on water and calms the storm. But with the multitudes, we, 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 we don't just see growth. Like it, when, when Jesus goes from individuals to the multitudes, we, we no longer see the expansion of his influence. Instead, we see to see more and more and more and more people rejecting him. You can see up there how it goes. You know, he goes from Cana to, to the Jews to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all of a sudden it just turns. He's rejected in Jerusalem, rejected in Galilee, rejected by his followers, rejected by everybody, and then the Sanhedrin plots to kill him. We get to the sixth sign where a man is born blind, and something, and that's something unheard of, completely unheard of, absolutely miraculous. His enemies argue and complain instead of worshiping. They, they, but they can't deny Jesus' power. Uh, in the miracle, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. This is, I'm the light. I bring light to dark places, to places that have never seen light before, just like the prologue said. And his enemies respond by showing how much they love the darkness. They hate the light, just like the prologue said. Then, as things are starting to crescendo, we get to the seventh miracle, seven being a very symbolic number in the Bible. And Jesus does this completely otherworldly, totally only God can do it thing. He looks at Martha and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now you'd think that would solidify Jesus as Christ, Savior, and God. How do you argue with someone who can raise the dead? Well, that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus' enemies show they love the darkness so much, their response to seeing the lame walk, the blind see, the hungry fed, the dead raised, was, as verse 11, or chapter 11.53 says, from that day on they made plans to put him to death. That was the response to Lazarus. At that point, the story of Jesus slows to a crawl. The first half of the book, 11 chapters, takes place over the course of three years of Jesus' life. The second half of the book, 10 chapters, takes place over the course of one week. Passion week. The Gospel of John is this incredible book. I haven't even gone over all the ways it's divided. It's, it's so interwoven and beautifully designed. My hope is that as we study it together, it will inspire you not just to read the Gospel of John, but to see it, appreciate it, understand it, meditate on it in a, in a new way, to, to meet Jesus in a way you've never met him before as the way John's Gospel reveals him. But let's get into our study for today. I hope you've kept your thumb in John 3. Open up to John chapter 3, 22 to 36. John 3, 22, 36, this part occurs right after Jesus spends the whole night talking to the, the Pharisee Nicodemus about why he had come into the world, what his mission was in the world, how it would all go, and how people would react. He, he talks to Nicodemus about all that stuff. And then the next day, hopefully after Jesus got a couple hours sleep, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Pause, pause there a second. Ethan, would you grab me some water, please? The whole section here is about argument. Argument and interpretation of what's going on. Uh, you see the picture here, because a lot's going on. Remember? When you read the Gospel of John, what the Gospel of John is trying to do is to answer the question, who is Jesus? Right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written 30 years ago. Gospel of John comes. That's why it's written so differently. And it's answering the question, who is Jesus? Kind of filling in the gaps for the other Gospels. And he, do, he does this using imagery and illustration. We've already talked about that, imagery and illustration. But there's another thing he uses, and that's contrast. I take a lot of pictures these days. I have a light box set up in my office so I can take pictures of the little things that I do. And a light box is essentially this big white cloth box that you shine a bunch of lights on. And if you, so if you've ever seen anything sold by Apple, uh, you'll, you'll know they love light boxes because that's the only thing you can see is just the thing they put on their, on their box or on their advertisement. They take their phone or whatever and they stick it on this perfectly white background. That's what I try to do when I take my pictures. Thank you. When I'm editing the pictures, there's a whole bunch of settings I can use. Uh, but to me, the one that makes the biggest difference, that changes everything the most, is the contrast button. It's a slider that, as I slide it, the colors get richer, the blacks get darker, and whatever I'm taking a picture of pops off the screen. Okay. Lots of contrast means big difference. And so a lot of times in the Gospel of John, you'll see the author boost the contrast sometimes, where all of a sudden the separations become very clear between whatever John is showing you and Jesus when compared to anyone else. So in this case, Jesus is being contrasted with John the Baptist. That's sort of the underlying idea of it by the author. And then the overlying picture is this argument interpretations. What's going on here? We've already seen that John the Baptist is called the witness. Right? We saw that in the first few chapters. Well, Jesus is called the light. right? As in, you need light to see something. You see something. Well, Jesus is the source of light. John the Baptist is the voice. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Jesus is the word. Right? John the Baptist baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. Here in this, uh, an interesting thing, we see Jesus and John are both having baptisms at the same time. But Jesus is in the Judean countryside. John the Baptist is in Samaria. They're really close to each other, like near each other on a border. But John's in Samaria and Jesus is in, uh, is in Jerusalem. So you see this, this, this distinction again. John here is called rabbi, and it's the only place in this book where anyone other than Jesus is called rabbi, so you know something's going on. So what's happening there? Well, the stage is set in verses 22 to 24, and the situation kind of comes about, and, and it happens when in verse 25. This is sort of the, the key of what's going on. Verse 25, now a discussion rose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Okay? 
over purification. We're in the middle of a baptism. Two people are baptizing. Purification, obviously going to be the argument. This was a major point of disagreement between the followers of John, the followers of Jesus, and the rest of the Jewish leadership, all the other Jewish leadership. The Jews, meaning the Pharisees and the members of the ruling council, Sanhedrin, would often, it seems, come to John and confront him about why he thought he had the authority to baptize people. This seems to happen more than a couple times. He's not an official in the temple. He's not authorized as a teacher. He's not even in Jerusalem. So it rankled these authorities that people kept coming to John to be baptized, ritually washed. For the Pharisees, most of you know that ritual washing was a huge, huge thing to them. Huge deal. They had all these rules and regulations and religion and ceremony about it, which is why they were always upset with Jesus. Because, not because he disobeyed the Mosaic laws, but because they kept, he kept breaking all the extra laws they'd, he, they'd put on top of it, right? For example, you know how we're all about sanitization and washing our hands right now? We got nothing on the Pharisees. Consider this. At one point in Matthew 15, a bunch of high-ranking Pharisees and scribes travel all the way from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. 130 kilometers. No cars. And they need to ask him this one huge, overarching, totally, I don't know what to do with this question. So important, it couldn't wait till he came back. That question was, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? 130 kilometers. A whole contingent of people, that question. For them, washing hands wasn't about personal hygiene. It was about being ceremonially, religiously, spiritually clean. Before a Pharisee would eat, they would have a special ceremony for washing. For them, the condition of their hands was the condition of their soul. Some taught that if you didn't wash your hands, you could get a demon Others taught that it showed how much sin was in your life. The dirtier the hands, the more sin you had in your life. Others said that if you ate with unwashed hands, you could forfeit eternal life. Their ceremony was actually really interesting. Every home had to have a certain amount of ceremonial water available. They were told to use the amount of water that would fill one and a half eggshells. Okay? They were to hold their hands upwards. You've probably seen this in some, in some movies and videos. Hold their hands upwards, and they'd have the water poured over their fingers while the water ran off their wrists. Then they would turn their hands downwards as the fingers point downwards, and they'd do it again. Then they'd rub their fist into one hand, into the palm of the other, and they'd do it with the other hand. And if you were really devout, you'd do this between every course of one meal. Okay? So you can see kind of the heart of the, uh, of the person that had come to John's followers with questions about purification. Which is why every now and again, one of the officials would take the trip from where, to wherever John was and basically say, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Because you're not doing it right. And they'd start an argument. John's baptism was about it wasn't about showing religious devotion, this external thing that everybody can see. It wasn't some kind of superstition. It, his baptism was one of repentance. It was an external symbol of what was going on in the heart, the, the person being baptized. They were saying, 
I'm a sinner. I need God. I want to change my life, change my priorities. I want my heart to be ready. I want my heart to be clean for when the Messiah comes. That's what he was doing. And they would show that by getting publicly immersed, ceremonially washed in water, their whole body. Which is why we see in verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Apparently the argument with this Jewish per official uh, got really heated. Not only was he upset with John the Baptist, but he had actually come and brought a report saying, listen, there's this other guy too. His name is Jesus. He's baptizing too. He's on the other side of the Samaritan border here, and he's baptizing people too. And that's just too much. This is too much. This Jewish official is super upset because now there were two people breaking ceremonial laws, two people bringing a bunch of Jews and getting them baptized outside the temple. Now the followers of John were upset because Jesus was starting to get more followers, and he was starting to baptize them the same way John was. In fact, some of the people who had been baptized by John, they were now going over to Jesus, and they were getting baptized again. So they're like, okay, what is this about? So they, the whole troop comes over. Jew, John's followers, and they look at their rabbi. Okay, what is going on? Jewish official is mad because the traditions were broke, his culture was insulted, his authority was insulted. Followers of John are jealous on behalf of their master because Jesus is getting more popular. Everyone is upset because this ceremony, this ordinance, this ritual washing was being done by different people for different reasons. So what does John the Baptist say? Now remember, they have just called him rabbi. John the Gospel writer makes a point of saying that, and it's a special word. It means teacher. In other words, the, the Jewish official and the followers of John and everyone else gathered around him look to John the Baptist as their teacher for an explanation. And in essence, John's answer was to contrast himself and everybody else, including the Jewish officials, with Jesus. He looks at them and he says, John answered, A person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What's John saying here? He's saying, listen, I might be a rabbi, I might be a teacher, I might talk about God, but Jesus 
literally is God. He's literally the source of knowledge. I didn't come up with the stuff. I'm just the reporter. It was given to me by God, and he's right over there. I'm the forerunner. He's the, the, the Christ. I'm the best man. He's the groom. I might be at the party, but the party is all about him. I'm from earth. He's from heaven. I'm a witness to the truth. He's truth incarnate. Now, I talk about baptizing people for repentance with water. Jesus utterly changes people and gives them the Holy Spirit without measure. I was chosen for a mission. Jesus has been given all things. Therefore, and now look at me, everybody. Look at me, disciples. Look at me, people who are here to get baptized. Look at me, Jewish official. I hereby announce my retirement. I refuse to be a distraction to what Jesus is doing. I will not compete with him. He must increase. I must decrease. My job was to tell you the problem. I warned you about the wrath of God, the death of your soul, the corruption of your religion, the poison of the Pharisees, the need for repentance, and you've listened to me. But now, instead of talking about the problem, I'm pointing you at the solution. He's right over there. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's the point of the whole narrative. Where we can kind of find something to apply to our lives. Just like the Jewish officials, Christians and religious people argue about all kinds of things to do. Just like John the Baptist's disciples, the way we practice our religion, our faith, our Christianity can become competitive. We can get jealous or upset as we argue with each other about how we follow God, about which teacher is best, which translation of the Bible is best, which music is best, which tradition is best, which church. We argue with each other, just like John's disciples were. Individually, we can be like the Jewish officials by being argumentative, stubborn, superstitious, overzealous about trivial issues. Or we can be like John the Baptist's disciples, start to worry more about our positions, our traditions, our focusing on numbers, on finances, on growth, rather than on Jesus and serving people. Both of these groups had it wrong because they were worried about external things. Teachers, washing, popularity, respect. And not worried enough about internal things. Am I right with God? Is my heart full of sin? Where is my faith? Do I believe in the Son? Do I obey the Son? Am I under God's wrath? John's, John the Baptist's words here, and John the Gospel writer's intent, is for us to stop comparing ourselves to others, stop comparing our ministry or our church to others, stop comparing our family to others, our calling to others, our giftings to to others, stop trying to impress God and impress others with external things. And to realize that in order to be a Christian, in order to follow Jesus, it is the internal priorities that need to change. 
Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's an internal change. Over and over and over, we see John the Baptist say what he's not, right? In the first three chapters. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Right? These are the words of a man who was not concerned about what anybody else thinks. He was concerned about what God thinks. He's courageous. He's bold. He's bold enough that he would stand up and declare to everyone what God has told him to say, put himself against the Pharisees, against the Sanhedrin, against everybody, against the king, even if it gets him in trouble, even if it gets him arrested, even if it gets him beheaded. He'll say it. But every word he speaks, everything he does, points away from himself and towards Jesus. And when any of his own people elevate John, he reacts by debasing himself, declaring the praises of Jesus as God, Lord, Savior, Christ, and in no uncertain terms, just stepping out of the spotlight. A whiff of his followers saying, but you're important too, John. No way! I'm out! He humiliated himself. He humbled himself so people could see Jesus more clearly. So I want to ask you something this morning. Do you see yourself in this narrative? Do you see yourself maybe the Jewish official? Are you the Jewish official? Are you worried about external things rather than what's going on inside of you? Are you like John's disciples? Comparing yourself with others. Comparing yourself, your life, your church, your ministry, your marriage, your kids, your job. Comparing it with others. Always worried about success or numbers or finances or what people think. Or, are you willing, if it means Jesus gets more glory, to change your internal priorities so that you decrease are you willing to decrease your influence, decrease your expectations, decrease your finances, decrease your comfort, decrease the authority you think you have over any part of your life and just turn it to Jesus so he can increase? You'll often hear the gospel framed as a pitch for all the wonderful things that God can do for you, all the wonderful things that happen when you meet Jesus. And there are. There are many wonderful gifts that come from knowing Jesus. But there's another part too. A deeper aspect of the faith that those who have turned their life over to Jesus need to understand. It's that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're with him, the more you study him, the, the more you worship him, the, the brighter he will shine. And the duller you will look. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if God uses you in a mighty way, changes people's lives, speaks through you in a special way, and no one ever knows it? Are you okay with never getting rewarded, praised, even thanked for doing the right thing? Or maybe, in your obedience, you do the right thing, and a whole lot of people misunderstand you, and it actually costs you. Are you okay with that? As Jesus shines, you get duller.
I think of the story from David, 2 Samuel 6, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Remember that one? The Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God, is coming back into Jerusalem after a long time. It's been taken by the Pharisees. It was recovered and profaned by Saul, which cost him his throne. And because it's so powerful, so dangerous, <laughs> they decided to keep it at someone else's house. But when David becomes king, he hears that the person who had the ark is being blessed. And he's like, well, I want that. I want to bless. I want it to bring it to Jerusalem. I want it to bless everybody. Let's bless the nation, not just this one guy's house. Okay. So David, being this super passionate, super musical, like worshipful guy, loves God. He makes this into a huge deal. It's like a parade. There's music and there's dancing and there's instruments and there's party food and there's sacrifices to the Lord. And then it says in 2 Samuel 6.14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. A linen ephod is a simple version of the type of garment that a priest would use. So there's the king of Israel, not walking all dignified in front of the ark in his royal robe, but dancing with all his might in this simple little outfit in front of everyone. I, I'd imagine our equivalent today would be something like sweatpants, right? And an undershirt. But there's more spiritual significance when David does it. David's wife, My Michael, he sees, she sees this, and she gets super upset. Her dad, Saul, would never have done that. And she despised him in her heart. Once the party's over, the ark's set in place, David returns home, and his wife tears a strip off him. How the king honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of female servants as one vulgar fellow shamelessly uncovers himself. You looked terrible out there. You looked stupid out there. Everybody was watching you. You looked like a fool. You embarrassed me. And David's response. It was before the Lord I was dancing. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself more contemptible. Other translations say undignified than this. I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody thinks. I was worshiping God. I was dancing for God. And if it means more worship to Him, more glory to Him, then I'll become even more undignified. In other, other words, He must increase. I must decrease. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So my question to you, are you willing to decrease, to become undignified, contemptible, abased, unpopular, reviled, persecuted, uttered against, 
falsely accused if it means obeying Jesus and he gets more glory? Will you become duller so he can become brighter? Or does your self-image come before your obedience and worship of God? I'm going to give you a moment of silence to just process that. In what ways for you have you felt shame, guilt, fear of people because God asked you to do something? Did you feel like worshiping one day? Maybe you're raising your hand. You're like, oh, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. God said, I want you to go do this. Go give to that person. Go help that person. You're like, well, yeah, but if someone sees me with them. In what ways has your self-image come before your obedience and worship of God? If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at artofthechristianninja.com where you'll find more messages, free books, and all of Pastor Al's social media links. If you appreciate this message, please consider sharing it with your friends. If you want to keep these blogs and podcasts coming, consider helping out financially by supporting us through our new Patreon page. You can find the link on the website. Pastor Al Desjardins speaks at Beckwith Baptist Church in Carleton Place, Ontario, Canada. If you have any questions, want to learn more, or just see what Pastor Al is up to, head over to artofthechristianninja.com. While you're there, hit the subscribe button, use the search bar to find lots of other topics, watch some sermon videos, and even download all of Pastor Al's books for free. Thank you so much for listening, and have a blessed week.